Hi and welcome to this week's Property Matters, the programme that brings global trends to an Irish audience to help shape your knowledge of the industry. You can email us on hello at iradio.com or on Twitter, it's iPropertyRadio. As usual, host today are myself, Brian Fox and Carol Tallon. And uh, first we're going to go to the headlines because price property has slowed nationally with Dublin showing the most significant cooling off according to the Independent this week. Uh, the latest report from myhome.ie found that annual asking price inflation fell to 2.4% nationally in the second quarter of the year. The lowest level has been in five years. Now in Dublin that figure entered negative territory for the first time since 2013. It's down to minus 0.6%. Despite the downward trend in the annual inflation rate, the report, which is published in association with Davy, found asking prices are, continued to, are continuing to rise. Asking price nationally rose by 2.1% in the second quarter of this year compared with the previous quarter. In Dublin, prices rose by 0.5% to the same period. This is the weakest second quarter gain since 2012. Overall, the median asking price for new sales nationally was 276,000, while in Dublin it was 382,000 euro. UK construction sector fall output falls at a, at steepest rates since 2009. Indeed, in output in the construction industry sector fell at its steepest rate since April 2009 in June, according to a close-watched activity survey, survey. The Purchasing Managers Index showed declines across the sector over the month, add, adding to the evidence of a wider economic slowdown in the second quarter of the year. The index for construction showed a reading of 43.1% in June, down from 486 in the previous month and way below the expectations of economists. Brexit, I think. But, Carol, over to you with the next Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. And actually, Brian, it's, um, it's um, quite interesting to note there that while the index showed a reading of 43.1%, I think anything above 50% is re- or 50, sorry, is required for growth. So that mm. means it's actually stopped growing. Um, so that, that's an important stat to look for, particularly in the context of the Irish market and the impact that will have. But here in Ireland, I think the big news story of the week so far is that effective um, effective immediately, we have 19 new areas uh, across 11 counties have been designated as rent pressure zones. So that's on foot of the Rental Tenancies Act and, and the reform of that. So it effectively means that landlords are limited to a maximum of 4% rental increases each year. And it's interesting to note that these changes mean that approximately two thirds of all rental properties in Ireland now are covered under the rent pressure zones. Um, and also, just for existing landlords, uh, just to point out there that the rent pressure zones, the legislation have extended this to the 31st of December 2021. So, in fact, that that now means that the rent pressure zones are going to be enforced longer than we thought they were going to be. Okay. So, um, in terms of these changes, the residential tenancy law relating to the rent pressure zones, um, they means that the rent, the residential tenancy board can investigate and sanction breaches, um, any false notifications, any non-registration of tenancies and in fact the the sanctions for non-compliant landlords have really strengthened their going from a caution or a fine up to €15,000 and there's more legislative changes on the way. And just uh, to give an overview of the rent pressure zones, you've got towns like Formoy and Middleton in Cork, um, Athenry and Gort Canvara in in Galway. Kilkenny has now come under it. Port Leash, um, Grey Cullen and much of Limerick 
um, Dundalk, RD and other areas around Meath and the, and the commuter belt and it's interesting to see that Waterford has come into this now uh, Waterford City um, and the boundaries around Waterford Athlone, Gorey down in Wexford and Arklow in Wicklow Just before we go on I mean, what is, a fa- is this a correct move to, to bring all these fair li- all these um, these rural uh, centres into the into the zones do you think? Yeah I think it is because I, we're at a stage now that um, construction all of the uh, much of the construction activity was centred in Dublin and the environs and so that meant that actually supply was becoming better in those areas which was I won't say it was easing the rental oh, pressure but it was certainly adding new rental stock to those areas where it's actually in rural areas the rent was the rent crisis was starting to bite but there's been no new supply there so actually the rents were were creeping up now they're still relatively lower than in Dublin but they're still creeping up. So actually the rent pressure zones, I think this is very welcome and I think it's really interesting to say now that uh, two thirds of all rentals in Ireland are going to be under the rent pressure zones. Right, but will it still be a business proposition for landlords to let out their properties, do you think? No. But, it ha- but this isn't the deciding factor of that. In fact, the legislation has become overly burdensome, increasingly onerous on landlords. And, you know, we hear all the time about landlords exiting the market and the data is sometimes skewed because we have uh, we have investor, professional investors or institutional landlords coming into the market. But the reality is individual landlords, um, accidental landlords, they're exiting the market just as fast as they can. The the tax regime here simply doesn't make Mm. it worthwhile to be a landlord in Ireland. And the difficulty there, you know, it's fine that we're building all of this built rent, but we've had estate agents in from outside of Ireland um, or from outside of Dublin into the show here. And they're all telling Mm -hmm. us the same thing. Built um, the built rent is only being delivered in Dublin, Cork and Galway. It's not even being delivered in Limerick. It's not even being delivered in Kilkenny and mm. it's certainly not being delivered in Dundalk or Athlone or Portlaoise. Mm. The other question finally I want to ask you too is the maximum of 4% rental increase how will that affect? The, is that is that a fair rental increase or how, how would you view it? Yeah it absolutely is. is rent it? shouldn't be going up by more than that. So yeah mm. I, I think this is a fair thing for tenants. tenants yeah. Yeah. yeah no and you know it's funny actually there was a landlord a landlord actually I, I was um, reading about only the last couple of weeks and he was saying that he's charging um, I think it's 1800 euros for a month rent in Dublin 15. But he said 900 euros of that goes back to the state in tax. So he would be quite happy to receive 600 euros mm. and and pay less in terms of tax but have the tenants pay less so he's happy to receive less he's happy for the tenants to pay less as long as the state takes less you know it's a little bit like when we complain about petrol and and Mm. fuel prices and then you realise how much actually goes to the state so I don't I don't see that um, the rent pressure zones is the only tool at the government's disposal in actual fact the tax regime on individual landlords compared to that of institutional landlords and REITs it's ridiculous that a school teacher in Cavan with one with uh, one rental apartment is paying more in tax than a REIT or an institutional investor on on uh, rental property. It just doesn't make sense. Discrimination. It, it, it simply doesn't make sense. But the thing is, we're taking away the bottom rung of the ladder. Remember, institutional investors are only ever going to cherry pick the very best areas with the highest paying tenants. So where is all the private rental that's needed for the market? Where is that going to come from? Very good.
Anyway, sorry. <laughs> rant, rant over for now. Um, our first guest in studio, our, our regular guest is Emma Hayes, Head of New Media at Property District. And she's here today to talk about some of the public consultations that are live through Place Engage. Um, so, Emma, you're very welcome again. Hiya. How are you guys? So, what news have you for us today? Well, there's a few public consultations open at present, as there would always be. But um, if we look at Cork, um, we have the Cork Docklands to City Centre Road Network Improvement Scheme. We have the Harbour View Road Junctions Improvement Project and we have the Passage Railway Greenway Improvement Scheme. That's can, all happening in Cork. Yeah, and you can find out more on corkcity.ie about that one. Um, moving on then, we you may remember we had Kevin Smith on here last week, uh, mm-hmm. Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, he is from Balbriggan and the uh, Fingal County Council is launching the initial stage of public consultation in relation to a local area plan for Kellystown Dublin 15. The local area plan will consist of a written statement and maps setting out a land use strategy for the proper planning and sustainable development of the area and guidance as to how development can be achieved. They are asking actually for local input as is considered to be a huge help to the process and that they value what people say. So, yeah, And yeah. actually I think last week I was listening in um, yeah. last week when <laughs> Kevin was here and I genuinely thought he was great because yeah. he's exactly the kind of voice we need to capture. Public mm-hmm. consultation is exactly that. It's the public being consulted about what changes are happening in the area. Yeah. And I think sometimes people forget that planning is a public function. Mm-hmm. And it only works mm-hmm. if the public get involved. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. what we have, what tends to happen is that you've got a small number of local people, possibly with vested interests. Mm-hmm. I've been very cynical when I say that, but that's the reality. Mm-hmm. And, and they tend to hijack um, they tend to hijack the public consultation process by logic objections. So actually what we want to do is let members of the local business and residential community know that um, these changes are being planned. Mm-hmm. Their contribution is being sought. You know, this is yeah. the government and this is your local government um, asking for your voice and your opinion about what's going to happen in terms of uh, safety and greenways and um, green areas mm-hmm. and children's play areas and where housing should be and what type of housing it is this is where the the community get to voice their opinion and now is the time to do it rather than giving a, out about it on social media after it's done yeah mm-hmm. that's very true and um, yeah as you said about um, people complaining there is there's a public consultation up for the preferred route for N55 Athlone to Ballymahon Road um, there, apparently they met last week and the N55 Athlone to Ballymahon Road is actually one of the busiest inland roadways in the country and they're saying basically uh, Councillor Tom Farrell did say on local radio that's going to impact severely on on landowners and homeowners so the members of public will have the opportunity to make observations and voice their opinion Okay so what so, area is that again sorry? Uh, the okay, Athlone to Ballymahon Road. Road Okay yeah. So people again get involved yeah, go on to the local authority yeah. website and, and voice your and opinion And voice your opinion and then we had the new di- diaspora policy to debate it in public meetings a number of public meetings with the Irish community in the UK will be held across the country next month to help the Irish government devise a new diaspora policy. The meetings with the the Irish government has said will be a great opportunity for the Irish community in the UK to have their say on government of Ireland and improvement and support connections. I actually, I think that's a really interesting one. to see how... Yeah. if it gets its feet off the ground at all. Okay, well, speaking of the Irish diaspora, right, mm. Brian, you lived abroad for mm. many years mm-hmm. and are recently back. Mm. How did you feel as an Irish person living away? How involved did you want to be? Well, you see, the thing about it is that, <laughs> I mean, um, certainly it is, it is, there's, there's a difference, I think, between living in the UK, as I did in London and, and the US. Um, I feel that the, uh, 
the um, distance between Dublin or Ireland and the yeah. UK is a commute. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, for a lot of people, uh, the um, I suppose going from Dublin, I suppose to New York, is becoming a commute as well. But um, the thing about it is that uh, in the US, I think you take on a stronger Irish American identity. As opposed to Irish. Mm -hmm. As opposed to Irish, because, um, for instance, I mean, I'm political, you know. So, for instance, the fact that you can't vote in Irish elections Mm -hmm. can get up your nose. And there's been many attempts over there, particularly in the US and indeed in the UK, Mm -hmm. to try and get some reform on that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting now because we have a senator now in the uh, the government, in the Iraq, Senator Billy Lawless, who was a Kenny, an Kenny appointee, and his direct job I suppose is to try and promote that and to try and promote uh, well try and try and get more immigration I suppose visas for for um, Irish illegal Irish in the United States but it's more concerned around those those areas in the in the states and I must say that for the most part the Irish um, bed in very yeah. well in the United mm. States and and but is that know, to the exclusion of um, having an opinion of what happens in Ireland about what happens in I Ireland th- who's I, elected? I would, go to, I would venture to say that they're more informed about what's happening in Ireland than they are here. Oh, I believe that. I genuinely believe that. Because, yeah. you know, in my day there, there was, you know, when I, when I arrived there first, there was no thing as internet at all mm. whatsoever. There were um, all these sort of... Um, uh, in New York, particularly shops that sold international newspapers and the Irish papers sold very well in those, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, but there is, I mean... There is a sense now when you're Irish over there of being very, very accepted, as opposed, mm-hmm. and I, I know it's been years ago since I've been in London, to, to England, where there is a sense of being English. You know, Now, London yeah. is a very big city, yeah. and it's a very welcoming city yeah. as well, but it's still English. Yeah. Whereas in the United States, New York is everybody's, you know. So the sense of the, the diaspora and so forth yeah. is interesting from that point of view. And the, the um, it will be interesting to see, too, because we know that for the various referendums, the government um, officials went out to various countries as well, and, and a lot of them came back to Ireland to vote in the in the referendums. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know? So there, there is a there is a consciousness yeah. of of the country and the way it's turning and all the rest. And actually, I was speaking to a, a fr- uh, my cousin's um, son who was uh, who is living in New York at the moment, and he was very conscious of the fact that property is very expensive here and the whole property scene as well, mm-hmm. and very angry, you know, and, yeah. and, and and was aware of the fact too that it's a disincentive for business people to locate to Ireland okay. as a result of that. And know? is his interest <clears throat> and his feeling around that, is that as somebody who has an interest as in ties to the country or is it somebody who that in some time in the future might be thinking of returning to Oh no, we'll have Ireland. very much awareness going on here. I don't think he, he's looking at returning mm. to Ireland, you know, but also looking at it as a, as a business proposition as well, you know. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, I, I really do think that what you've just mm. read out there, yeah. Emma, the diaspora, is something that really does need to be tapped into strongly because there is a strong link by many Irish people. And, and yeah. you have the Irish clubs in London and all that, yeah. and the old associations of the Kilburns and all yeah. that. That's changed as well. And of course, education's changed that and so forth. But I think now, uh, if we can get, if we can extend the voting rights too, whether it be in the Shannon or, or elsewhere, are you, so are you in favour of extending voting rights? And sorry, Emma, I should ask, 
is that actually something is that actually one of the proposals in that actually they haven't given a full outline Details, on the topics yeah, yeah, yeah they're saying yeah. that they're going to be explored and that well, well the fact is yeah, anyway that, that the, we are expecting a referendum anyway mm, on yeah. uh, a number of positions in the Shannon to be given to, to immigrants anyway mm, yeah. you know? but uh, full disclosure <laughs> I will give you full as soon as I set foot in, in, in the States myself and other few friends organised ourselves to in a movement to, um, to, to, to get the vote to be able to vote from abroad you know so, so obviously uh, that's something you're in favour of absolutely yeah, you know, yeah. okay I have to say it's something in theory that you're not in favour years ago I was in favour of and I've lived in the UK and yeah. in Spain and in France for a very short but lovely time yeah um Given the size of Ireland, and uh, do you know what's really changed my mind that I, I'm just not sure if I am in favour of extending the vote to people mm-hmm. not living and, and resident in the country. It's because I see the power of social media and influence. And quite frankly, I would be extremely concerned that we would have, we would end up having a popularity contest through Instagram and having somebody like um, that lovely Longford lady that's appearing on Love Island at the moment, More you know, appointed. And, I, I, you know, I just worry about the influence of well, yeah, but, to media. Be, you, but you look at uh, someone like Alan. I mean, you like where I don't mean to be disrespectful, but look at Peter Kelly, who came in from from I think he was down in Georgia, Georgia wasn't it? That mm. he was a businessman, and mm. he, well, he went up for the presidential election, yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah, he, of you know, he was yeah. caught yeah. Uh, with the narrative on the itinerants down, down, and down. But look how he uh, he he's lived and worked in America all the way mm-hmm. through, you know. So I think it's just an era now where we have to accept that sort of stuff, you know. Now I was slightly idealistic in that I was hoping that we could uh, vote in our constituencies that we've left from abroad, which is slightly idealistic. And the one fear, I, I know we're talking about property here, but I'll I leave it at this one. The one fear we had at that time, or sorry, excuse me, I wouldn't say the one fear I had or my friends had, but uh, government had, was that Sinn Féin was in its early days at the time, you know? And they were, they were there was a certain nervousness about what the direction they were taking. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's a very valid concern. At that time. Um, and know? again, this comes down to the power of social and media. That was before, and that was before the, um, before the um, Good Friday Agreement, etc. You mm-hmm. know, so there was a lot of nervousness about where the North of Ireland was going. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a very mm. valid concern for a number of different reasons. And you see, again, it comes back to placemaking. If you're not, and I, I know I, I circle that back to that point all the time, but the, I'll say, if you're not living in an area, mm. should you be allowed have your say about that area? You mm. know, we we looked at this la, mm. a couple of months ago about the Athenry project that was derailed by a Wicklow man yeah, who wanted to, to sell a site. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Interests, interests should be aligned. Yeah. So if you're well, not you living see, in I mean, the area how, I mean, and you've no intention to return but, to the area, I, how interested uh, are you in property prices? Oh, I would, I, I would always follow what, what's going to happen locally as well here. I mean, I'm, I'm from the. From but is the, that of more interest? More, you know, uh, will, like, will it impact you? I mean, should there be some kind of proviso as in, well, you know, but, if but, you're planning but, to return? But, but, but Carl, from a European point of view, every European citizen is, yeah. is allowed to vote in their particular townland or county or city. You know, that that's that's uh, we're, we're the we're the exception to the rule at the moment. As in, so anybody? Actually, I wasn't aware of that. So you're saying that anybody from look at France the lines, who's look at emigrated the lines, to the, lines the US outside, votes in French elections? Look at the lines outside Polish mm-hmm. embassies or French embassies and so forth. They're mm-hmm. all turning up to vote from abroad. Yeah. You know. Look, I, I I think it's some. I, now you know it's interesting. I'm 
I want the public to have their say. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, we've always had a rule about democracy, yeah. certainly in our house and in our circle friends, you don't get to complain about the government if you didn't vote. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter which way you voted, yes. but if you didn't vote, yes. you yeah. don't get to complain about it. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those standard rules. And I feel the same about place. You don't get to give out about the place. You don't get to give out about mm. the planning permissions as granted bear in mind or the zoning too, bear in mind if you too, didn't uh, have you know, your say in the public f- consultation. Sure, another factor is, though, that, you know, these American kids that were working in diners and all, they were sending thousands of dollars back to their to their, to their parents back mm-hmm. to, yeah. back to home and I suppose that's a very valid one as well I think you know? pros and cons here guys okay. <laughs> I think I think we could argue this all day and basically See, you're going to come down to the positives and the negatives so it's going to be both because you both made very valid points there <laughs> which is lovely it's a great debate <laughs> She's the epitome of democracy. Yeah, Actually, Emma, just, just for anybody in the areas like Athlone and in Cork City and some of the Ballymahan and some of the areas that you yeah. mentioned, um, where can all of that information be found in terms of public consultation? Uh, well, on their own websites as well, but we'll have Place Engage. Um, we'll, so if you check out Place Engage, all those details will be on that. So Place definitely en- check it out. Place Super. Engage. PlaceEngage.com. That's great. Yes. Okay, Emma, that was Emma Hayes, Head of New Media with Property District. Thank you so much for joining us, Emma, no and problem. for... Um, and for mediating this discussion. <laughs> Glad to do it. No, no punch is thrown anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. This is indeed Dublin South FM and Property Matters of the Programme. With me is Brian Fox and here is Carol Tallon as well. On Twitter it's iPropertyRadio or email at iPropertyRadio.com. Now uh, we have Trevor Kelly. Uh, he's Public Loss Assessor and Property Claims Expert at Insurance Claims Solutions. Welcome Trevor, back yeah. again. Thanks very much Brian. Good to see you. Let's just ask you the first question. How do you select the correct insurance policy and, the, and the, what sort of level of, of policy coverage uh, do you need for your needs and coverage for your needs yeah just take it back one step basically we deal with claims and people have have suffered property damage um, so we're there to sort of pick up the pieces so what I would say to people is the most important way to get your full entitlement uh, is to make sure that your uh, insurance policy is in place correctly before the incident so you're giving yourself a very very unfair disadvantage if you don't have a correct policy so typically um, your home is one of your biggest investments or the assets that you would hold um, I come across policyholders very very regularly that wouldn't have the correct levels of policy or the correct insurance policy in place to cover all the eventualities so um, whilst the property is usually usually the homeowner's um, most uh, expensive asset um, or investment, many instances uh, little consideration is given to the uh, the intricacies of the policy, the sums insured or the value at risk. And the event of a claim, this can lead to policyholders thousands or tens of thousands out of pocket. Okay, but where does this problem start from? Because I know myself, having worked with property buyers, particularly first-time buyers but uh, and investors over a decade, there's so much happening at the time you buy your first property that actually um, buyers can be very overwhelmed and they're they're just not familiar with it. And in fact, one of the things that's quite confusing is that people think they're covered. So, for example, you know, um, as part of the mortgage, they will have been required to get certain um, insurances and assurances and therefore they think they're covered. They don't understand what's necessary really for the benefit of the bank or the mortgage holder um, or sorry for the mortgage um, the, the mortgage lender and what's relevant for them because you know you mentioned there that your home or your, your property is your most you know expensive asset but actually your mortgage is more likely to be the most expensive investment mm-hmm. that you make. So do you think that there's some crossover between, you know, the insurances that that um, people are required to take out and so maybe are then just not getting the best or maybe independent advice at mortgage stage? 
Right, so when, you, when you're when you buying a new property, uh, one of your mortgage stipulations would be that you take out property insurance to cover the amount of the loan that's that's mm. there. Mm. Your insurance policy, you must set it up for the full reinstatement value mm. if, the, if the building was destroyed and had to be rebuilt from scratch, knocked down and rebuilt. So at the time of taking out or renewing your insurance policy, it's typically left up to the policy holder to set and declare the sums insured. So what does that mean? That means that you'll have to tell your bank how much, or tell your mortgage provider or your insurance uh, provider how much you want your contents and buildings insured for. So it's up to you. They will ask, they will advise you to get it uh, independently checked, but mm. it's very, very, very unusual that's where to you do come that. In though, right? um, yeah, we can we can offer that service. Um, we don't, it's not, our, it's not our main service, but we can offer a value at risk survey for, for policy holders to make sure that they have the correct uh, sum sure to start with um, so when you have a claim when you have a claim in your home your insurance company will send out uh, a loss adjuster a, a claims representative to investigate the claim take photos take the measurements the details of the loss also another one of their roles is to uh, measure the property and its environs to determine exactly what the correct value at risk is so the value at risk is what you should be insured for the sum insured is what you are insured for now if it if its value at risk is found to be more than the sum insured so basically if you're saying 25% un, uh, underinsured then in the event of a claim your insurance company will take off 25% of the claim settlement what's called average so they take off because you're deemed to be self-insured for the period that you're underinsured by or the, the amount that you're underinsured by so if you're insured for 300,000 you should be insured for 400,000 then you have a 100,000 euro, 100, euro shortfall which is 25% so if you have a claim to that property and it's a 100,000 euro claim they, what they'll do is they'll multiply 100,000 by your 300,000 what you're are insured for and divided by the value of risk the 400,000 which should be insured for so instead of getting uh, 100,000 in your claim payment you'd only get 75,000 because you are self-insured for that proportion that you're underinsured that's called average in your home insurance policy Okay now that sounds like something that could potentially trip up mm. um, inexperienced home homeowners. Um, so, is when you see that scenario actually in in day to day in your day to day work, is that likely to occur because buyers got their mortgage and then just renewed or got their their home insurance day one and then just renewed it but didn't didn't reassess the value and they just keep renewing it or does your insurance company at renewal stage prompt you to review the value yeah at renewal stage they will send you out your renewal documents and they'll ask you are you happy to proceed with end documents are you happy do you need to increase the values so um, although some of the small print will say that you should get it independently valued basically people are busy enough people are shopping around for the policy they're trying to save 10 or 15 20 euro here there everywhere so they're not really looking at the sum insured because they don't think anything's gonna ever, ever going to happen to them so what i would say is uh, if i if i would see 10 claims in a day three or four of them will be underinsured um, and they'd be underinsured um, circa 10 to 40%. So that would 40% mean, would be very significant. Yeah. Typically, if you have a large home, uh, people don't really uh, emphasise uh, the importance of having the correct insurance. Uh, they, may, they may have built it 10 or 15 years earlier. They may have done it with direct labour and they may think that it costs a lot less to build it. Now, the Society of Chartered Surveyors 
uh, rebuilding uh, Society Charter Surveyors issue a rebuilding calculator or rebuilding guide which the insurance company use to apply to your value at risk. So that includes the, the property be rebuilt and all the professional fees in relation to it. It's a very, very simple calculator. It's a Society Charter Surveyors. It's the rebuilding value. You put in the square footage of your building, you select your area, whether it be Dublin, North East, Cork, Limerick, South East, West, put the square footage in, the type of building, it'll give you a very good indication of what your correct sum insured should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what your insurance company will use to determine what the value at risk is or what, the, what you should be insured. Do you think then that, um, what's your own analysis, what's your own take on our houses, properties in this country underinsured? Well, I'd see um, like three to four, 30 to 40 percent, 30 to 40 percent. That big. Yeah. Um, and when you go out of Dublin, it actually gets worse because you have bigger properties, you have less standardised stock. When you're in Dublin, a lot of, there's a lot of three-bed, four-bed, standardised stock. They can only be valued for so much. But when you... I had typically had a... I had a, I had a down the southeast, I had a client who had a fire last year. He was insured for 200000 The value at risk was 500000 So essentially, was, he was 60% underinsured. Now, fortunately, that uh, insurance policy that he had with a, a major uh, insurer didn't have average on it so it didn't have a deduction for under insurance average but what it did has what it did have was a deduction for wear and tear because of the level of under insurance so that was one that um, we had a 20% deduction for, for be- off the bat just because he wasn't correctly insured I think that was a, a claim that was in around 300,000 but if he only had to take that 20% drop obviously that could have been much worse because he might have had to take a 60% drop yeah. Yeah. so how does a scenario like that arise? Well, it's just people not not educating themselves in That's, relation no, to... Yeah. It's not educating themselves. Mm-hmm. It's not putting the emphasis on the correct... The people. It's only affecting people when they're having a claim and they realise when they have a claim it's really too late to correct your sum insured. It only, you can only basically correct it for the next year or the next claim. So basically then people are just signing off on your rules without any sort of re-evaluation. Exactly. And the uh, the lack of people going through a local insurance brokers is a big factor in that because a local insurance broker would generally know the, 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 the road, the house, the stock. Mm. And if they're un- they seem to be underinsured, they would generally be able to flag that. But the problem is people are buying them off co- internet companies and uh, direct from insurance companies insurance providers who don't know don't have a relationship don't come out and check the property so if you buy off a a good local broker they'll be able to advise you if not what you should be insured for but who to employ in order to uh, correctly assess your 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 sum insured so uh, i'm an advocate for the small insurance broker local insurance broker because in the event of a small claim they can even help you out as well they can advocate in your behalf but even you know if it was a natural disaster such a fire or flooding a lot of people could be in a lot of trouble. Definitely, if, yeah. if their house had to be completely demolished. And I, I deal with people who are in a lot of trouble, and I'm trying to get them out of that, trying to get them out of the mess. But you it, know, does a lot of this come down to the fine print? You know, um, like insurers, when you phone up for a quote, you're given a headline quote, but actually the coverage might be very different. So, in fact, what happens when you're comparing quotes generally is that you're not comparing like with like anyway. Yeah, I would find between the five and six major providers in the country, the major insurers, you will have big differences in levels of cover, levels of excesses, endorsements, policy wording, um, claims claims conditions, um, sums insured. So it's always good to speak to somebody who's dealing with claims in the coalface before you, before you select your insurance policy, determine exactly 
when it comes to a claim, are they reputable? Will they pay up? Will they play silly burgers? Whatever, whatever, whatever it is. So really, not every insurance policy is the same, and you do pay for what you get. And if you're if you're buying an uh, insurance policy for two hundred quid. You know, yeah. there's there's yeah. there, you're, there's some there's there seems to be something amiss. I don't know how mm. to, how the insurance company would make money out of that. Mm. Um, yeah. the, so what I would say is check the exclusions, mm-hmm. check the f- fine print, which nobody will anyway. So mm. it's always very important to get independent advice off a local broker, or anyone can contact me. I'm I'm accessible on the phone. And I'll tell them very very quickly. But what, I, what is your website, Trevor? Yeah, okay. my website's insu- uh, insuranceclaimsolutions.ie. And I'm available for sort of uh, any uh, complimentary advice in relation to work that, uh, in relation to queries like that. Yeah, Trevor, I think uh, the last time you were in, I said that um, you had probably terrified our audience, so we said we'd have you ba- back in to explain things in better detail. And I think you've actually <laughs> you've done a better job in terrifying them. Um, when you talk there about the importance of wording. That sounds almost like um, there's the potential for home buyers to be tripped up. And if you're saying that, you know, th- three or four out of every 10 that you see um, can be between 10 and 40 percent underinsured, that's a huge problem. So, I mean, is there a point where, you know, I understand that people going in day one um, they're trying to cut costs everywhere. They're doing, you know, uh, they're doing what their mortgage broker and and their bank are advising them or their, or their solicitor in some case are advising them to do. But at what point do you really need to not automatically renew your insurance like is it kind of at the end of year three do you say okay now we, mm. we need to actually look and reevaluate, or is it maybe year five or is this the kind of thing that actually if you do it every decade you're fine well I would say last year is probably the best time to do it <laughs> and then the next best time is next year so it's con- your insurance is a continual uh, process so we have uh, inflation we have construction cost index we have and that the rebuilding costs will track that very closely. So if you apply, if you see in the, it's a 5% increase in construction costs over 12 months, you're probably okay adding 5% onto your uh, SCS. It couldn't be any It couldn't be any simpler. Society of Charged Surveyors update up, up, uh, that list every year. It takes, I'd say, two and a half minutes to go in and put your, if you know you're building your square footage, length by breath, multiply by the amount of stories, um, put in your, your house type, it'll give you the calculator within 5%. Do you think part of people not doing this is because they're afraid if they increase the value, then it's increasing the premium? No, I don't think it is because a slight increase in your value will not make a big difference in the premium because your premium is based on the risk and you have a certain risk that you have insured. So if you add another 20,000 onto that, you may see an increase of 10 to 15 euro. It's not um, going what to... What would you see as risk? I mean, risk in terms of... Oh, your risk, your value <coughs> at risk. So mm. your, your risk would be your property. So your full, like... But I, when I say your risk, I would mean that you're loading. So if you set it, if you take your policy with, um, with your provider, that's a certain risk, uh-huh. but add twenty or ten percent onto that risk is not a great deal because you've, you've priced for the actual risk to, to start with. You're right. only just applying the value. So, essentially, it's like the same as same as a car. So once you once you um, once you pay for the initial risk, then any additions on top of that is not they're not going to be great because you, they've already got themselves covered right. with that. Right. You know. So uh, in terms of premiums, then I mean, would would the uh, house buyer getting a better premium deal if they're buying a new house as opposed to an old house is, is that are they um, would they be determined when you're taking out a policy they have certain assumptions that are made that the house is of good construction that it's not 100 years old that it's have um, has no standard is no non-standard construction items or up to a 30% has five five 
five lever mortise locks has alarms all that sort of stuff so once you meet that criteria but to okay. be said for um, period properties and specialist properties they would have a, a special risk and you might even be able to buy that off your off, mm-hmm. the, off the general market you may have to go to a specialist market like Lloyd's in order to cover yeah, that because right. obviously they're a higher so risk so therefore you'd need to get some advice from your mortgage broker if you're going to go that way well your insurance, insurance broker your mortgage broker, broker, broker generally would, would sell you insurance but may not have the expertise to, to uh, ad- advise you correctly yeah. on See, it I, I genuinely think that that's what's happening and I'm not sure that um, people in the throes of trying to secure their mortgage when they're actually trying to secure their new home potentially even their first home I'm just not sure that this is even on their radar and they think that what they're being sold they're covered Yeah. Um, yeah. yes yes. Yeah. so yeah you could say a lot of people don't take 100%, 100% mortgages and your bank will only want you to cover their proportion of the amount that they're that they're liable for, so they don't they're not really concerned about the twenty or thirty percent that you put in yourself yeah. or you've upgraded. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if you have a twenty percent deposit and you're only insuring for eighty percent of the value, but remember, it's eighty percent of the reinstatement value, yeah. not the market value of sure, the property. Sure. And depending on what way the economy is, the actual reinstatement value might be more than the market value. Two thousand and two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. Um, the property values were, were much below the cost of construction mm-hmm. but you would have had to insure it for the construction the reconstruction and the reinstatement so you might have actually the property might have been worth, worth or sorry the reinstatement value might have been worth double the actual cost of the property or the, the value of the property but it's the reinstatement not the market value that you insure for Interesting it, it, it's worrying, Very, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Trevor, thank you so much for joining us again. That was Trevor Kelly, uh, public loss uh, assessor and property claims expert at Insurance Claims Solutions. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. And coming up after the break, we'll be joined by Des McCabe of the um, Apartment Owners Network. Everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM. And you're very welcome back to Property Matters with me, Brian Fox and Carol Tallon. On Twitter, it's iPropertyRadio or on email, it's hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Now, uh, in studio is Des McCabe. Des is a voluntary director of the Apartments Owners Network. And I have in front of me your report, uh, Des. So I take it you are obviously looking after um, owners' apartments. Yes, the Apartment Owners Network, just to give you a bit of background, it's a voluntary group set up probably over 10 years ago now. And it's a self-help group. Uh, Owners and directors of OMCs come together, meet on a regular basis, discuss the issues and I suppose to try and promote best best practice in in the industry and, you know, lobby for new legislation. Very interesting because, sorry. No, um, I was going to ask, were you involved in lobbying for these reforms, uh, the reforms of um, the report that was issued between Cluett Housing and the the um, housing agency there for Sustainable Apartment Living for Ireland? Yeah, so that's, that'll be our focus now going forward is to try and get the recommendations in that report implemented um, with the government. I know... A regulator is one of the main... Uh, this is so what Darrell O'Brien is looking for, is it, in terms of his legislation? Am I right? Am I on the right track? Yeah, yeah well, yes, it, w- it would be. I mean, I suppose the, the Apartment Owners Network would like to see a regulator that would oversee the, uh, the OMC sector. Right. He's looking for an ombudsman, isn't he? Yeah, which would be something, it should be something similar. I, I think um, uh, certainly at the launch of the report with um, Cluid Housing and the housing agency, you know, there were a number of portfolio managers there and um, approved housing bodies, of course. And I, I think they definitely came down on the side of 
wanting a regulator more so than an ombudsman okay. but perhaps if there could be some um, coherence or tie-in between say the uh, residential tenancies board and some of the, you know really to tie in that you don't have a number of different regulators across different property sectors but maybe have one that's dealing with um, owner management companies and other issues affecting tenancies and rentals so it's it's a huge it's a huge issue for people but you're dealing with a network so talk to us about um, you know because I, I know last week Brian yourself and Emma talked about you know the, some of the proposed changes and certainly we'll get into these but can you maybe tell us a little bit about the experiences that your members are having that that made this network necessary? Yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of it goes back, to, I suppose, to the boom years in in the noughties, um when apartment building, you know, mushroomed, um, and uh, there's a lot of legacy issues from that. But I suppose one of the main issues that directors of OMCs are voluntary, mm. and they don't necessarily have a background or training, and then they're and and most most of it out of out of goodwill and public service look to try and become directors of their OMC to make obviously their own living environment good and and for the people around them as well but they don't have any training and i suppose they've been they're they're managing multi multi-million uh, property portfolios effectively now um so that's one of the big big challenges are, are um, you dealing with mainly investors or owner occupiers both both mainly owner occupiers I suppose the network would be more uh, balanced or lean towards owner occupiers, but there would be investors as well. We don't distinguish between once you're a property, an apartment owner, okay. welcome you. Because I did see one of the recommendations is actually for mandatory training. Mandatory to training, serve, yes. Uh, to serve as a director okay. of an owner's, owner's uh, management company. Yeah, Are you in favour of that? I would be. I think it's something we need to be a little bit careful of because if you have too much training or it's too onerous, uh, people will obviously, it's hard enough yeah. to get directors to come on board. So mm. there's a balance there of people having the knowledge to be able to uh, director, but not scaring them away at the same time. So, yes, but I would be in favour of mandatory training. But uh, as I said, I think I always think there's two types of directors out there. One where they have, you know, a competent managing agent involved and they're running the estate on a day to day basis and they are looking at, you know, project work and the high level budgets. And then there are people who have to deal with a huge amount of legacy issues, either being with the developer or building defects, uh, bad debt, and they need a lot more support. but I do favour, yes, some sort of, regu- of mandatory uh, training. Am I under the wrong impression in that uh, you f- it's difficult to get um, uh, people that are, are living in the, those apartments to, to come together on, on boards of management? Yes, very difficult, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think that would be everyone's experience. I mean, I, my, my own experience is I'd say only about 10% of our members come to our AGM every 10%. year. 10%. Yeah. And is that through fear or through indifference? Indifference, yeah, indifference. And I think if if they feel it's relatively run relatively well, I mean, it can be a positive sign too because they feel there isn't anything major that would uh, force them to come. Mm. But I still think at the same time it's bad because there is an indifference and people think sort of the status quo can just continue on for forever, you know. But is there is there a difficulty there in terms of communications as well? Because, um, you know, we would generally take a strong uh, focus towards the technology that's making things like this easier. And a couple of weeks ago we had 
Andrew Farrell from Block Angel in and have you have you heard of um, you know these block communication tools where essentially you have an app for a building that connects all of the owners so that uh, not only are they notified of meetings um, but they more importantly if they can't attend the meeting they actually have a mechanism to to speak to each other mm. and exchange information and maybe vote on topics so I, I just wonder are we you know, when we d- expect people to turn up to these events, you know, given how we live now and mm. how we work now, are we automatically excluding certain people? Maybe because of language barriers, cultural barriers, working hours. Um, you know, are we excluding people by not allowing them to contribute and have their say maybe through um, through an app on their smartphone when the technology exists? Yeah, well, I think that's a very good point. I think going forward, I think OMCs are probably slow to pick up the technology button and use it to make, to help them. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point that maybe to look, because generally, I suppose the managing agent would have the day-to-day running of the, mm-hmm. the, um, the OMC. I suppose that's something maybe the managing agents and and their should be looking, looking at, at and their associations should be looking at. Yeah. Well, if you're running a public meeting and only ten percent turn up, mm. you know, surely that's that's uh, you know kind of a, an indicator that more people are affected. So therefore, more more people are likely to get involved if we make it easier for them to get involved. And you know, the reality is, in terms of communications and how we live now, not everybody's going to turn up to an event like that. And you know, sometimes there's there's um, a feeling that, you know, a little bit like you said, complacency will look if I don't do it, somebody will do it. Whereas actually, if you give people a voice, make them more informed, they're more likely to feel connected and part of it so that they will feel a responsibility as, uh, you know, to, to contribute. Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent point And I think it's something both the OMC to the Apartment Owners Network and the managing agents should really try and embrace a bit more and, and, and look to bring on. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an excellent, an excellent idea, I think, yeah. What have been the biggest challenges you've faced? I mean, you know, one of the things that comes out in the report is obviously about dispute resolution and sanctions for non-compliance. Mm. So I presume, right down to the basic, not not paying your management charges. Yeah, I mean, I think probably for most developments, that's probably number one okay. on their list of of issues that they have to deal with. For, for some, it's 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 very big, particularly for apartments sold during the boom years where people bought at the top of the market and they're in negative equity. So and they're fine both to pay their mortgage and to pay management fees. It's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And then I think for developments that are a bit older, there's probably more legacy debt, but they're probably in a better position. But yeah, I think, I mean, there's a there's a culture in Ireland of not paying management fees. I, I thought so. Yeah. yeah not. Think, yeah. Where does that come from? I, you know, I genuinely, I, I'm mm. interested because you know, I grew well, I grew up on a dairy farm. I live in. I I, I now live um, outside the city. So you know, I I can remember living in apartments in Spain and. It, you know these th- these things were just paid it wasn't yes. questioned and yes. I, but on the other side of it you saw the value because you know it, there was never any rubbish around bins were always collected mm. so you knew well, you what were, value uh, you were getting like do we have a value as problem well, I dare say mm-hmm. yeah I mean I, it seems to be a cultural thing in Ireland I mean I don't I think people see still see apartments as maybe an investment or just a, a stepping stone on the property ladder they 
they like if they don't take it so it's not a proper twining as such if they don't take it seriously enough yeah. or something like that I, I mean we still have one of the lowest uh, apartment living in the EU I think it's 7.3% seven, uh, it's, 7. Yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. it's it's very low Some but that's set to, that's set to increase in fact it's set to, to double in a very short yeah. space of time and I know uh, Ronan Lyons has frequently said that we need is it 2 million apartments by 2050? Yeah, and one other statistic is 90,000 extra apartments in Dublin and will be needed in mm-hmm. the short term to meet yeah. demand. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's part. We can't continue with our three-bed semi and our garden. Mm-hmm. It's not sustainable. We don't have to. Do, yeah. do, you know, do a lot of these problems come back to, you know, maybe those developments built during the boom time where um, the developers retained apartments and so therefore we're part of the management company but not active in the management company and when they go bust where what happens yeah, to the communal the, areas yes that's i mean when i joined the network first i would have said that was probably after the bad debts probably the second biggest issue was what we call vesting the common areas over over to the omc mm-hmm. now the mud act has dealt with that so you must actually transfer your common areas over to your omc before the first development first unit is sold mm-hmm. but, but there for is anything built, built prior to 2011 yeah it's it's still it's still an issue i mean even in our development even though the developer never sought to have influence or control it. He never actually vested the common areas over until we went chasing for it. But did the companies, did the development company still exist as a company? It did, yeah. So you were probably in a more fortunate position than many. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people where the actual developer goes bust and that underlying company goes bust and still has title to the common areas. I think there's a big legal issue there. It reverts to the state. As far as I know, it reverts to the state and there's a court order required to show that it has reverted to the state. And then actually, does it need to be gifted back by the minister? I think that's that's the procedure people have to take. Yeah, but I mean, back in the boom years, a lot of developers were looking to retain control of the OMC because there was land Mm -hmm. attached on the common areas and they were looking to try and develop that long term. I mean, they even they even had a lien on it. They would hold one par- car parking space uh, as a lien on it on the on the OMC. Mm-hmm. Gradually, they're being resolved, but I think there is uh, there is some legacy of that still still outstanding. Yeah. What sort of satisfaction rate would there be in terms of the uh, owner and the um, management commi- uh, the management the estate agent the estate management company? Would there be a slight distrust of them or, or a slight? Yeah, I mean, I think that probably goes back to the factor of people not paying their service charge. I, disgruntled. Disgruntled with the managing agent and maybe the service they get out of them. Mm. Um, but I see, uh, and people still don't distinguish between the manu- managing agent and the management company. And often your issues lie with the management company as to po- as to pose with the managing agent. Um. I mean, at the end of the day, the owners are have ownership of the management company. Mm-hmm. They're part the, of it. it. They're yeah. part of it. And so they're part of the solution as well. So they must come together through the management company to ensure that they have a successful development. And then from that, they appoint a competent managing agent and have a good relationship with the managing agent. But I think there is legacy, yes, there where there's a bit of distrust distrust between owners and the managing agent in, in some developments yeah yeah and speaking of legacy you know is there um is there more of a standardization being sought in terms of sinking funds 
you know, because we're, we're at that stage now where you have legacy buildings that maybe um, fees weren't being paid on. So therefore, maybe low or virtually mm. no sinking funds. And you've got people buying in today that suddenly might have a very large share or responsibility towards, you know, maintenance of a building that hasn't been maintained over the past 15 years. Yeah, well, again, I think probably one of the biggest issues now going forward for OMCs is building up a a correct sinking fund. A lot of people are putting notional amounts um, in a sinking fund. I know the MUD Act um, mentioned 200 units, 200 euros per unit, but no one could ever find out how they came up with that figure. So that could be for some developments because the OMC sector deals with say, maybe houses in a managed estate or mm-hmm. duplexes where the costs are a lot less that could be a, you know yeah. an appropriate figure but for apartments probably 200 is way way below what's way needed low. and right actually that's on. a really important point when we talk about uh, owners management companies mm. we're not just talking about no, apartment no. blocks it's actually yes. multi-unit developments I was just going to come to that mm. point it, they're no longer maintained now by local authorities it's, yeah. it's the actual residents that have to yeah often even when you drive mm. into an estate an open estate Mm -hmm. there could be an underlying OMC that looks after the common areas and cuts the grass. But that is the trend now, isn't it? Nowadays, yeah. That's the trend, yeah. You know, where do we need to get to? You know, we we know under Project 2040 that half a million um, new homes are required and more than half of those are needed um, in Dublin. And in fact, most of the estimates say that actually that's probably half what we really need. So if we're talking about half a million new homes in Dublin... The chances are the majority of those are going to be apartments. We're all going to have to learn how to live in closer proximity to each other. There's a cultural shift. There's a cultural shift needed, yeah. surely, if only 7.3% of the population are living in apartments now. You know, how, how do we change that culture? Well, again, I think I suppose to the work to the, the Apartment Owners Network and everyone else involved in the sector, I think trying to make a you know selling apartment and trying to make it an attractive proposition to live not just short term for a year or two but long term where you could spend most of your life in an apartment I think it's a very important uh, message we get across and that's for all stakeholders government I think we really need to promote apartment living and everyone living in closer quarters together because there are benefits in there's a a worldwide trend now to live in urban areas mm-hmm. So you do, there are disadvantages, but you have the advantages of public transport, you know, cultural events close by, no need for a car. So I think all those aspects just need to be emphasised more. Is it fair to say we need to we need to get the design right so it actually suits people at different stages of life? That's true. I mean, I think traditionally in Ireland, apartments were geared towards uh, single couples, not, not, not families. Starters, yeah. You know, and that needs to change. Look, I I think it comes back to the changes and how we live now. And, you know, this is something that I think we're going to be talking about for a long while to come. So, Des, thank you so much for joining us. That was Des McCabe, Voluntary Director of the Apartment Owners Network. Uh, Thank you for um, thank you to all of our guests who've been in studio with us today from Brian Fox and myself, Carl Tallon. Thank you for joining us. Um, Shane Flynn was on sound and producer was Kate Tallon. Next up on Dublin South FM is Bowl of Soul. Great.